create my friend Sydney. Hello everyone and welcome to the show and here we are it's me and it's Ryan A. Bush with me so welcome to the show. Thank you friends I'm excited to be here. I know, right? It's a great day and it's even sunny over here in the United Kingdom and I hope it's sunny in your area as well and we can talk about sunny days and happiness today. And you know, one thing that we always talk about in my show is how to create this life that we want. Not wait until the children are grown up, wait until you retire, wait until you're an empty nester, but really enjoy life now to create this life. And, and yet we see so much unhappiness and my audience wants to see why we're not happy? Why? What's going on? Are we focused on the wrong thing? And I have just read the, your entire book. <laughs> and I was like, ah, he's, he's been doing a lot of thinking. Do you want to talk about a little bit, first of all, who you are, introduce yourself, what do you do? Because you are just a thinker and people might think, what, what is a thinker? <laughs> Wait, guys, right. wait, wait. And then we're going to talk about this problem of not knowing where we're going. Off you go. It's all yours. <laughs> Sounds great, friends. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a thinker and a designer. So I kind of have a, a professional background in design of uh, products and software and systems. And then uh, I've been asking questions about philosophy and psychology for much longer than that, actually. When I was a teenager, I started really digging into this stuff. And uh, I launched my first book uh, a few years ago in 2021, Designing the Mind, the Principles of Psychotecture. And this is really a book that's exploring the process of designing and changing your own mind, right? Your thoughts and beliefs, your emotions, your behaviors and habits. Uh, how do we actually zoom in and make those changes? And, uh, and that's what the first book explores and kind of what I've built a, a community around since then and a number of other products and programs and uh, cool things like that. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm basically integrating my own experience, the, uh, the research I'm doing in psychology, the, the works of ancient thinkers from you know, thousands of years ago in some cases who already had a lot figured out about the human mind, and, uh, and synthesizing it all together. And, uh, and that's really what I'm doing in a different way in this newest book, is coming out with a sort of integrated framework for uh, this thing we call happiness and why it is uh, that it seems to be so elusive for so many of us. Yeah, what is happiness? Let's ask artificial intelligence. No, just let's ask Ryan because he's been doing all this. He's got these spreadsheets with a list of what happiness is. And then what would you think? Why is it that nowadays we see so many people that, uh, you know, maybe have addictions, depression, and this true unhappiness, you know, they're drinking the way through, they're eating their emotions. What's going on? A lot of layers to this. So I think to start with, uh, I think we get a lot of mixed messages about what we should be doing in our lives, where we should be going. We have lots of uh, temptations and kind of endless distractions too. Uh, and, and it all kind of comes together to really complicate this pursuit of, of the good life that I think would have been uh, a little bit simpler a few thousand years ago. Um, but essentially, I, I argue that we don't have a very good map for navigating our well-being, particularly in the modern age. Right? We, we are using a superficial map, uh, trying to maximize a combination of pleasure and gain. So I've argued that we're basically navigating our lives using a faulty map. We are trying to maximize uh, things like short-term pleasure and longer-term gain which seem to be the good things in life. And yet these are not the things that actually tend to deliver. When we look at 
happiness uh, on a statistical level, we see that uh, happiness doesn't necessarily correspond to more of these seemingly good things in our lives. Uh, we see that lottery winners, for example, uh, very often think that, that winning the lottery is going to be the best thing that ever happens to them. And pretty shortly after uh, this huge success, they're back down to where they started in terms of happiness. Right? And similarly, we can, we can look at negative events. Um, you know, we can look at paraplegics, people who lost their legs and thought their lives were over, and very quickly their happiness comes back to the level that it was at. Uh, and, and I think we often hear these examples and kind of shrug them off and say, oh, that's weird. Sometimes happiness doesn't work the way we think. But I think what we should really do is, is pause and ask, why does it really work this way? Why are we all kind of spending our lives navigating uh, pursuing things that on some level I think we know aren't really going to make us more deeply fulfilled. Um, and so what I'm doing in this book is kind of providing a new map, a new way of looking at happiness. And I do that through this kind of three-dimensional model that I've, uh, that you've familiarized yourself with. Mm -hmm. So I gather then that my audience, if they have problems, they can come to you and say, okay, my problem is that I got this pressure, you know, I am in many groups where we have alcoholics, they, they stop and then when they get home, their partner or husband or friends are there pressurizing them to keep going back to the very habits that they are trying to get away from. So now they're all terrified. Christmas is coming and you're forced to eat, you know, forced to drink, you know, and it's like this pressure, you know, do you think that this pressure has anything to do with our lack of understanding of what virtue is because you have a lot of work there about virtue yes so i i will say first that um there are there are multiple kind of like i said there are multiple layers to this and i think a lot of what you're talking about with addiction and these things um really stem more to the fact that we have a world now that uh, doesn't resemble all that closely the world that we evolved in and our brains were sort of made to operate in. There was no alcohol, there was no casinos, there were no, you know, hard drugs back in uh, the age when our brains evolved. And these things have been sort of developed in the modern world to hijack our brain's natural functioning, make it very difficult to escape. I mean, it, and it's true for things like social media too, things that most people don't view as traditional addictions. Um, so I think this is a layer on top of what I'm talking about that, that makes it all that much harder. Um, but I think at the very least, we should at least know which direction we should be going in, right? Even though there are still things that could pull us in, like addiction, that, that could keep us from pursuing that path. We at least need to know which way that path is going and which way we need to be headed in. And I think this is where this concept of virtue comes in. And so... Um, the, the term virtue, it has this very kind of outdated, stuffy connotation today. Um, but it's really a, a beautiful term with a rich philosophical history. Um, and I use it to refer to anything that a person can be good at, right? Anything that, that tends to elicit admiration in other people. Uh, these traits that, that we cultivate in ourselves, these are virtues. And so it could be compassion, it could be courage, charisma, right? Anything, uh, you know, creativity. There are so many examples. Uh, even your sense of humor would be a virtue according to this system. And so virtue is really sort of the hidden dimension that's pulling the strings of our happiness uh, sort, of, sort of behind the scenes. And so 
What I argue is that there is, you could imagine there's sort of a chessboard sitting in front of you. Um, and there's these two axes, the X axis is sort of pleasure and gain. So you move to the right, that's more pleasure, left is more pain. Um, then on the Y axis, you've got uh, loss and gain. So moving closer to you is loss and moving further from you is gain. And so you've got this two dimensional space where you can sort of balance pleasure and gain and make sacrifices in the moment in order to achieve something in the long term. And this is essentially uh, what I argue most of us are using as a map to navigate our lives. Most of us are saying, how can I, you know, achieve this external thing and then I'll be happier. And, and this is the problem is this map is really inadequate and we get these things that we thought would make us happier and they don't really, we're kind of right back where we're at. Sometimes we'll lose something and, and we'll end up saying is the best thing that ever happened to us. And so what are, me, what are we missing? What I argue is that you can imagine a, a landscape of mountains and valleys coming out above and below this chessboard. This third dimension is what is essentially hidden from us most of the time, but it's what is actually determining our happiness. So even if we're moving sort of to the left, right, and we're experiencing more pain in our lives, if we're moving up in that vertical axis, that z-axis uh, of the mountains of virtue, we're actually going to experience more satisfaction and fulfillment, um, you know, and, and sometimes we can move to the right or move uh, further away on that axis and, and, you know, experience gain and pleasure, but also uh, experience greater virtue. And that is when we're going to actually become happier. And so, uh, I often sort of drive this home by using the term admiration because I think this connects really closely uh, to our intuitions, right? What is it that makes us admire ourselves, right? Can we get ourselves into a place in our lives where we will have greater admiration for ourselves and earned admiration, not just mantras that we tell ourselves? How can we, through our behaviors and our lifestyle, demonstrate more of these virtues, more of these traits that we admire to ourselves? And this, you know, I argue in part two, there's actually a, a very good explanation from an evolutionary and neurological standpoint for why our brains work this way and why virtue matters so much. Uh, but it's been argued in various ways since the ancient Greeks who, who said, you know, virtue is basically the path to eudaimonia or the deepest kind of well-being. Yes. I hope that everyone is following here. So it is not just about having it all or gaining like you know nowadays we see all these advertising becoming 6k a month six figure month whatever coach or whatever once you're there you know you hit it and when you hear they are you know they are absolutely burning out and just last week i was watching one of the most recent interviews from steve bartlett diary of a ceo which is number 28 in the charts think about two million podcasts is number 28 <laughs> Number two, Huberman Lab, but number 28, CEO. <laughs> and he's uh, doing well. And he was interviewing this author of a book. He wrote The Psychology of Money. And they were talking about that because he's a millionaire, Steve Butler. He's one of the Dragons Den here in England, which is an investment program, TV. And, and he was saying, yeah, I got all this money, and now what? And, you know, what's next? And so you realize that people need a lot more than money to be happy money isn't enough without suicides from rich people as men as well as from very poor people and and here's the thing there is something about getting getting this happiness that is opposite to comfort in fact you actually say that comfort is a barrier to virtue how do you explain that 
we want to be comfortable, don't we? Sure. And so, so I, I do want to address kind of the money thing because uh, this is a complex issue. You know, we, we have some people acting like money will, you know, solve all our problems and others saying money can't buy happiness. So what's the real answer? Well, I think it depends on your personal context. And again, this virtue dimension. So, you know, if you are struggling to, to just pay bills and provide for your family, I'm not the guy over here saying, no, 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 money's not going to solve your problems because there's a very good chance in that case that, that it will. Uh, but, but the reason it will is because it will enable you to put yourself in a, a position in your life where you can bring out more of those virtues. So if you are working, you know, multiple kind of monotonous, repetitive jobs that aren't really giving you an outlet for your greatest strengths, right, then, then anything that enables you to get out of that and spend more of your time bringing out those strengths really is going to make you happier. But it's not happy. You're not going to be happier just because you're richer. You're going to be happier because of what that enables. Now, you can also imagine someone who does have a job that's bringing out their greatest strengths, right? They do have a life that is really rewarding for them and enables them to bring out these virtues. Well, then they fall into a large sum of money and they said, oh, I'm going to quit my job, right? I don't have to work anymore. And they end up, you know, coming into this ease, this level of comfort then enables them to pretty much just stay home and play video games all day, right? And they don't end up bringing out those those strengths that they admire in themselves. And then they're going to be much less happy after the money. So, so the question to be asking is really, how can I use this two-dimensional plane uh, of my circumstances to raise myself up in this third dimension, right? How can I use money? How can I use comfort or discomfort? Uh, to actually make myself more admirable, more virtuous. And this is this is what I really believe is at the heart of our happiness. And so um, so yeah, comfort comfort can easily become a barrier. There are lots of types of comfort that will basically ease you into a sense of complacency, right? There are people who have been in, in extremely uncomfortable or even painful situations who have found meaning and growth through that. I mean, I recently reread uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And he argues that, uh, you know, basically there's there's something much deeper. You can find a kind of happiness and fulfillment, you know, even if you're in, in a prison camp, which he was, um, you know, and this is not an argument for mm -hmm. uh, the existence of prison camps or any other, you know, unpleasant situations. But basically, you can find opportunities to bring out those strengths and those virtues, even if you're going through something really difficult and you're very uncomfortable. That is a very good answer. And, you know, people have to understand all those who are able to retire age 30 with a few million dollars in the bank. After two weeks of retirement, their bank's found in another company because they are bored to death. <laughs> they yeah, need a purpose. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. We all need something. <laughs> so um, there was something else that I wanted to ask you. It, um, it was something interesting because... You were saying in your story, you've been home educated for quite a few years, if not for all your life. And um, I'm very familiar with this because, of course, as people know, both of my kids have been home educated one all her life and one for three years. And then, you know, one is traveling the whole world on, on his tall bike. You know, it's, you think, well, that's scary. And, and as a lot of people think, well, first education is a lot of stuff and we, are, we go to school, we don't go to school, we're anxious about school, we're worried about everything, we're worried about trying things, we're worried about many things in life, aren't we? And sometimes you were saying that it's actually trying something scary, trying something uncomfortable 
um, that is new, they will take the social anxiety out of the equation. And social anxiety is one of the biggest blocks of our development because we we won't we are paralyzed. We can't do anything because we are thinking we're gonna fail. People are gonna judge us, etc. Did you want to share something about? Because I remember all the details about your story, how you were asking this girl to talk to you when you ended up being good friends. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, when I was in seventh grade or going into seventh grade, I sort of switched to going to what I call real school after having been homeschooled and and went to Montessori school before that. So I kind of had an unconventional education, and um, and I went into school and, and basically like was not socially prepared for it. I wasn't really, um, you know, able to initially fit in with these kids. And I was very like, it kind of just shut down and didn't talk at all for that first year. Um, and, and I kind of got to a point where I said, you know, I'm not really proud of the person I am. I, I, don't, I don't know how I knew, you know, the importance of this when I was 13 years old, but I basically said like, I need to get out of my comfort zone. I need to go do something radical because I want to become a, a person that I'm proud of. I don't want to be scared of the world, scared to talk to people. Um, and so I went and joined the football team, which, you know, lots of kids do, but I was very much a, you know, scrawny little chess kid type person. And, and uh, you know, I went and <laughs> got beat up for uh, the next year. And then I did it for four more years after that. Um, and I, I, uh, I did a bunch of other things related to that too. I started kind of volunteering to give presentations in school. I started uh, doing all this stuff that was really uncomfortable for me. But on some level, I think I knew that's what I needed to do. Uh, I needed to get out of that comfort zone and give myself the room to be able to grow. And it it very much did have that effect. I think over the, the course of that high school experience, I pretty much overcame my social anxiety. I became a person I was very proud to be. And I've really kind of continued this endeavor of getting uncomfortable my whole life. I mean, even going on podcasts like this was was uncomfortable and scary the first couple of times I did it. And I've kind of pushed to to uh, do it anyway. Right. And yeah. I, I developed a program called the anxiety algorithm uh, that is really based around this idea and the fact that you know, most of us sort of look for easy answers to our anxiety. Most of us uh, are searching for ways to soothe our anxiety, comfort our anxiety. Um, and really, the, the only real way to get rid of anxiety is to go straight toward that thing that scares you, to, to stop avoiding and to confront and even embrace that thing that is scary. And this, this applies to way more than you would think. I mean, I think a lot of us understand exposure therapy, right? You, if you're afraid of snakes, you can decrease that fear by, you know, exposing yourself to snakes. And there's, there's of course, a right way and a wrong way to do this. Don't just go up and grab a snake. Uh, but, you know, you can, uh, you can overcome phobias this way. But uh, you can also overcome panic attacks and chronic worries this way. I mean, the same principles apply to all of these things. Because really, when we experience panic or just general low-level anxiety, what we're really afraid of is the fear itself, the fear symptoms that we're experiencing. So that elevated heart rate, that, uh, you know, rapid breathing, we basically start to feel these things. And then we think, oh, no, I can't have a panic attack right now. So immediately resisting it, interpreting it as danger. This causes these symptoms to elevate. We have increased heart rate even more. Right. And then we, 
you know, interpret it even more as dangerous. And we say, oh, no, I'm going to pass out. Something terrible is going to happen. Right. And we basically create our own panic attack by doing this. If we were able to accept the feelings and embrace them and welcome them, the, the panic would quickly subside. And this is really well documented. This is how you get rid of panic attacks is you stop resisting them and you start basically welcoming them and then they leave. And the same is true of, of worries. When we, when we worry, we're essentially afraid of our thoughts. We're afraid of our own what-if catastrophes that we make up in our heads. And we end up going over them over and over and over in our heads, uh, soothing ourselves, reassuring ourselves, and then worrying again and doing it all over again. And so uh, it's all really about finding a way to go toward that thing that scares you and expose yourself to that uncomfortable, scary thing and stop avoiding it. And then you'll quickly find it wasn't so scary to begin with. You know, you are absolutely repeating what I keep boring my anxiety clients with every day because the more you avoid something that looks scary, unless it's a train come to you to kill you, okay, that's all right, avoid the train. But the more you avoid, the more your brain will go, see, now you're safe, you're safe, you're good, just stay a cocoon. And in the end, you know, there are people that haven't been out of the house for years and years and years because it gets worse and worse. And then I say, no, let, let's just go out. Let's go and do this. And then they realize they can actually do it. And it was all happening in here somewhere. <laughs> it's not outside. It was nothing outside. It was all inside. And I call that the negative committee. And um, I found once there was a, a quote from, I don't know if it was an actress or something, and I use it with everyone. And he says, to that negative committee sitting in our head, sit down and shut up. <laughs> I'm just going to get on and do whatever I want. <laughs> yes. Even if my heart is going, I will not die. That's the thing. Anxiety attacks cannot kill you. My heart is beating. It's not going to kill you. Just do it. And then the brain yeah. will go, oh, there's nothing <laughs> happening here. And then it will go, poof. And eventually that was neurons. They were wired together. They were firing all together then stop and so isn't it incredible how powerful we are the most amazing powerful beings we can create our reality and coming out with all sorts of stuff so that, that's very good i think that's that's it's a good chat and we can keep going for hours but we do have you know quite a few minutes and i want to ask you a question about something you said you said life is good as long as you keep moving what does yeah, that mean? Because yeah. I'm one that never stops. Uh, what does it mean? To me? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and I think this this can be, you know, interpreted in a lot of ways because because it's not necessarily that you need to be as productive as possible. Right. But I think you yeah. need to always be asking, how can I grow from here? How can I increase the amount uh, that I'm able to bring out my personal strengths uh, in my life? I think that sometimes we get this sort of uh, like happy ending syndrome where we think that we should just be able to get to a point where we're done and we can stop. And unfortunately, that's not how our brains work. Our brains reward us for doing things that we admire in ourselves. And and this is the big thing I think a lot of us are missing is that, that we never really get to stop doing this. But if we pay attention to this and make this the primary way that we navigate our lives, if we are constantly asking, what can I do today that will make me admire myself the most? What can I do this week or this year, right? And continue using this as a guide, right? This will deliver the greatest enduring well-being over time, right? You, and this is the sense in which you have to keep moving 
in your life. But I, I don't think that means you have to be doing a lot of, you know, big, you know, elaborate things out there in the world. This could be, you know, you could take the goal of exercising and meditating every day in your garden. Like it, it doesn't have to look like a, you know, crazy productive business lifestyle. Right. But you do have to be setting and pursuing goals. You need to be asking, how can I grow now more than I ever have before? And that's that's really what is meant by this. Yes. So we are making sure that we don't get misunderstood. We're not advocating to try to be 100% productive of a whole day. I can't even speak English today. We don't say we should be up at 6 a.m. and work until midnight so that you can be growing. No, we're not advocating burnout or anything like that. But we're saying mentally, there has to be a place for us of growth every day, even if that means nourishing ourselves and actually stopping to take this time to take stock and see what, what's going on. And it's, it's, um, very, it's very unusual for a young person to be doing all this thinking. And there is something about having a vision of what we can become because we can become a lot more than we think, right? We can really achieve more than we can visualize. And I believe in a purpose that we have in life. And uh, some people will believe this is a divine reason. Other people won't believe it, whatever. But this purpose is there. And since we are tiny, we can feel there is something pushing us in a certain direction, a certain interest where we are really shining. We really want to know about it. Like, for example, you know, philosophy and spirituality and the brain and neuroscience. And, you know, that's your purpose, isn't it? And you shine when you do that. And if I tell you to do embroidery the whole day, you're going to go, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm going to die because <laughs> it's not yeah. in you. But other people will be, oh, my gosh, I love it. I love textiles. So we're all different. We have something. We have a bad inside that they want us to get really busy with it. And that's where we're going to shine. And I think... That's what we're going to get our potential. We're doing something that we are good at and we can become good at eventually. And uh, I wanted to quote again from your book when you say something interesting. You say, don't waste a minute of your life being less than you can be. And I think nowadays a lot of people go to bed thinking I could have done a lot better and they're disappointed. So any words of wisdom? Yeah, this is definitely not uh, permission for you to beat yourself up about how you're not no. realizing your full potential at any point, right? You can only do what you can do based on the resources and the information you have at the time. And so the question is, uh, using those resources to the best of your ability and your knowledge every day and, and experimenting. I think this is a really big part of it. If you haven't tried a lot of things, if you hadn't tried a lot of activities or being a lot of different types of people you're not really going to know your full range. And so you have to get out there and do things just in order to learn how you can eventually integrate them. You know, I talk about how, you know, by writing my book and, and creating my sort of psychotexture community and all this, I basically brought together all the like top 10 things that I'm good at in one place. And if you can find a way to do this, it'll be the most fulfilling thing you ever do i mean it truly does start to feel like a calling or a purpose uh when you find something like that and so you know the only way to do that is by trying a lot of things learning what you're good at through experience and and asking yourself how can i bring these together how could i build a vessel for my greatest strengths 
And uh, that's one of the big things I've done here. So this is sort of the, the high-end range. When you're, when you're pretty happy and you're pretty you know, content with how you're bringing out your virtues, you can start asking, how can I bring them together and build something new with them? But when you're at the low range, I talk about behavioral activation uh, for people who are kind of stuck, like you've, you've said, stuck in their homes, they're depressed, they aren't uh, doing much. And basically the, the question is like, what can I add to my daily activity schedule that brings out just a little bit more of my strengths than I currently am? And that might be just getting out of bed and taking a shower every day, right? Or if, if you're doing that just fine, it might be adding, you know, going for a walk, calling a friend, reading a book. Uh, but basically you want to create an activity schedule if you are depressed and you're struggling with this. Um, where you challenge yourself a little bit to do just a little bit more every day. And once you've got that down, you add a little bit more. And really it's about, uh, you can think of it as a balance between pleasure and mastery. When we said it's not just about being as busy as you possibly can, uh, for people who are really busy, this often means adding more pleasure activities to their lives because they aren't currently doing anything that gives them a reward, right? For people who are only doing pleasurable things and not actually doing much productive, we add mastery activities. So we encourage those people to add more that give them a sense of mastery, like they're actually accomplishing something. Um, and balancing these while asking, you know, what, what would bring more of my personal virtues into my life? And these can be work virtues. Uh, these can be interpersonal virtues or community virtues. There's a lot of different types, but this is, uh, this is the core question behind all of it. That's great. And our time is up. I would love to Sum up all this. What would be the suggestion you give to a person? You meet somebody on a trip and they say, I'm really tired, I'm depressed, I'm not feeling great, I don't know what's going on with my life, I'm kind of lost. And you want to give them like, you know, very train and you have two minutes. What advice would you give them to get started? What is number one step? Yeah, so, so a great starting point is to create a list of the people that you admire most whether those are people in your actual life around you or historical figures, philosophers, fictional characters, whatever, but create a really comprehensive list and then write down all those things that you admire about those people, right? Write down the actual specific traits or even, you know, the way they handle certain situations and create a list, you know, that feels right to you. Like this captures pretty much everything that I want to embody. And once you've got those traits, uh, you, you can start asking the questions of how can I bring more of this into my behavior? What goals can I set now that will gradually bring this into my life? Uh, you can also ask yourself, what are my personal strengths that I've always thrived at throughout my life? Um, you know, what have I always been good at? Because these will often be the traits that you want to really double down on and make sure you don't lose from your life. But the core message behind all of it is that you have a compass inside you that tells you which way uh, you should go in your life, right? There are a lot of people in your life trying to tell you how you should live your life, how a person of your group should live their life. Uh, there are a lot of distractions trying to pull you away from it. But if you take time and spend time with yourself and actually listen to those impulses of admiration, listen to the pride you feel uh, when you do certain things, right? These are essentially the guide that you need to navigate your life. And if you, if you just listen to this compass and, and take a step and pay attention uh, to how that feels, how you admire yourself, uh, what leaves you ending the day feeling the most rewarded and most fulfilled, 
right? This is this is your guide, and you can you can navigate from there. Thank you. Very deep and very useful, and it's a, it's a nice way of reprogramming ourselves and our brain to use all these strategies as a way of looking at our behaviors and thought patterns and say, hey, what can I actually do today? And we can start with all these steps that you elucidated quite well during the whole episode. So I would love to thank you so much for being with us, Ryan. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, and, and I'd love to offer your listeners a few uh, like free books if they go to designingthemind.org slash psychotecture. They can get the Book of Self-Mastery and the Psychotext Toolkit. I can send you that link for the show notes. Yes. Uh, but also, Become Who You Are should be available for pre-order very soon, all the major platforms. So uh, look forward to sharing that with everyone. Yes, very exciting. We're going to be putting links. And then, is it January when the book comes out? Yeah, Yeah, the, the book should be out for pre-order by the end of November, hopefully. But uh, okay. it, it will be officially for sale around February, March. Oh, that's great. So guys, you know where to go. You're going to have to look up for Designing the Mind and, and then go back to Ryan A. Bush and you will find links and then from there you go to his website. It's not as complicated, but we're going to put links. You will see links below as we say in both videos. So if you love this um, episode, please like and share with some of my friends or some of your friends. Share with everyone, basically. We love that. We, we love sub subscribing people. And we love that you um, perhaps write a good review for the book, for the podcast, for all of us, because we are working so hard to help you to create the life that you want. And we hoped that this episode was useful for you to get started, you know, and um, focus on what will bring you happiness. So thanks again to you, Ryan, and thanks everyone for listening and take care, everyone. Bye-bye. You've listened to Create with Franz Sidney.